0: the following podcast is sponsored by financial sense wealth management to learn more about our investment services go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939
1: the revenge of the old economy in all of the earnings coming out confirm this idea the revenge of the old economy tech missing substantially you look at the energy names, all surprising up to the upside. Industrials, all the old economy is what is outperforming here, partially due to the underinvestment thesis. Because what is the revenge of the old economy story? It's essentially poor returns over the previous decade, saw capital redirected into the new economy, all of that tech. This starved the old economy, the capital it needed to grow the supply base, creating a lot of the problems we're seeing today. Microsoft and Exxon this quarter printed similar free cash flow, yet Exxon trades 25% of Microsoft. Let me tell you this, year 2000, Microsoft was on top, Exxon was nowhere to be found. 2010, Exxon was on top, Microsoft was nowhere to be found. 2020, Microsoft on top, Exxon nowhere to be found. What do you think is going to happen over the course of the next five to 10 years? This is that revenge of the old economy cycle.
0: This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team.
2: Finally, some good news for investors this week. GDP was positive in the third quarter, but recessionary fears are mounting. And you see this in company earnings reports. Amazon fell 10% on Friday after reporting a slowdown in sales. Tech stocks got hammered this week on earnings misses. The one exception was Apple, which beat earnings expectations despite reporting weak iPhone sales. There was also a drop in bond yields, which helped stocks gain ground this week. But oil prices remained persistently high. And keep your eyes on the silver markets, which could explode as massive short positions will need to be unwound as silver inventories drop with silver leaving the COMEX and London warehouses. The possibility of a silver default are getting stronger. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplov, and Welcome to the Financial Sense NewsHour. Up on deck is Bruce Frazier. Bruce loves value stocks, energy and defense stocks. And following Bruce will be Greg Weldon as Greg and I discuss the bond market, U.S. government debt levels, rising interest rates, commodity shortages, and the metals markets, and much, much more. Greg will be followed by another episode of Smart Macro.
3: But first, let's find out what moved the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. The rally in stocks and bonds continue this week as investors continue to get comfortable with the idea the Fed may slow its pace of rate increases for the federal funds rate come December. In addition, rates eased this week, which has also helped to support the rally in stocks. The down Industrial average finished up 5.7%, the S&P 500 finished up 3.9%, and the Nasdaq finished up 2.2% as investors seem to stick to quality blue-chip names rather than bid up higher beta growth names. Part of the belief that the Fed may slow its pace of rate increases was helped last week when the Bank of Australia only raised rates a quarter point, opting to slow the pace of interest rate hikes on the 18th. This week, Canada did the same, raising its key policy rate by 50 basis points instead of an expected 75. The European Central Bank did, however, raise rates up 75 basis points this week as expected. Last I checked, it's basically 46% to 45% for a 50 or a 75-point hike in December, according to the Fed Funds Futures. Moving to earnings, it was a big week for tech, with most mega-cap suffering losses such as Meta, Platforms, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Amazon. The offset was in an uptick for Intel and Apple, which traded up after reporting. Honeywell and Caterpillar's earning reports drove positive earnings reactions and were the stars of the week helping to pull the industrial sector to the week's best-performing S&P 500 sector, up 6.7%. Microsoft stated a few things I wanted to mention in their report. They said foreign exchange had a big impact on earnings because of the strong dollar, and we saw that almost across the board from the mega cap companies this week. They said that the PC market demand further deteriorated Azure, which is their cloud division, grew 42% with a constant currency, and the company guided below that for the next quarter at 37% growth with a constant currency. Microsoft also noted a reduction in customer advertising spending, which was hinted at by Snap's disappointing results last week. Pinterest actually had great responses to their earnings this week. AMD had recently stated there's a significant inventory correction across the PC supply chain, and Intel was up on its earnings due to aggressive cost-cutting, which doesn't bode well for some of the smaller supply companies. Apple's results showed an impressive brand loyalty there, 10% growth in iPhone revenue to $42.6 billion, a fourth-quarter record. Foreign exchange took off 6% on Apple's revenue, growth, but it was still able to climb up 7.8% year-over-year ahead of consensus. And despite a drop off in PC demand, uh, as mentioned from AMD, Mac sales grew 25% year-over-year. Amazon missed on its cloud growth like Microsoft and lower guidance was a concern there. Besides the Fed and earnings, one of the early catalysts at the start of the week was the re-election of President Xi to a third term in China. Stocks with large exposure to China were clobbered on Monday, including Yum China down 14%. JD.com down 13%. Las Vegas Sands down 103 Alibaba down 12.5%. And Starbucks down 5.5%. Closing out the week, the Shanghai Stock Exchange was down 4%. Xi's re-election is associated with a strict zero-COVID policy, which has led to economic weakness. Their third-quarter GDP came in higher than expected at 3.9%, but that's the slowest pace in decades if we were to exclude the year of 2020. With this policy in place, it isn't likely that China will bounce back as hard as it could otherwise. While not a market-moving event, we got some new economic data this week, such as the market's IHS Manufacturing and Services PMIs for October, which were at 49.9 and 46.6 respectively, both of which showed contraction from previous readings. Consumer confidence slid in October down to 102.5 from 107.8. The advanced GDP figure for the third quarter came in up 2.6% from last quarter's negative 0.6%. Scott Hoyt of Moody's said it best this week that GDP won't play a significant role in determining timing and magnitude of the stock market's main concern, which is the coming rate increases up ahead. Stating that on the employment cost index and PCE deflators, those were the main things that the Fed is watching. And the PCE deflator was released on Friday, unchanged for September at 6.2% year-over-year from August. That pretty much sums up this week in stocks and uh, some of the major events like President Xi's re-election. Tune in next week for more earnings announcements. Up next, this week's guest market technician, Bruce Fraser. Well, the UK is committing to nuclear power as part of its energy mix. Finland has voted to go
4: full pro-nuclear. Swedish government is now also more pro-nuclear, which is not something that I thought I would see happen very soon. My home country of the Netherlands wants to build two more reactors in the coming years. India plans for almost 16 gigawatts via 21
5: reactors built by 2031. But the real story of this nuclear renaissance are China and Japan. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week... Go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button.
6: At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
2: Well, with stocks going up, a lot of people are asking, is this the year-end rally that everybody has been anticipating? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Bruce Frazier from Wyckoff Power Charting. He's also a former professor of finance at Golden State University. Bruce, this is sort of seasonality-wise one of the more favorable times of the year. Is this the year-end rally that people have been expecting or Could this be short-term or maybe longer? Let's begin with that.
7: Such a good question and uh, prepared for that question. I actually have done a study. Uh, We are going to post up PDFs of the slides that I have here because I'm a very visual person, so I'm going to try to create a a word picture. But what I have done is I've done the seasonality for all of the years of the S&P back 72 years. And the fourth quarter is a good quarter for the year. But what I did is I went back and I only looked at the midterm election years and of which we are in one and in, uh, and also in the second year of a presidential term, we tend to get a low in the second year. And so here we are in 2022, we get a low mid year somewhere. And then also for midterm election years, we tend to get a low at the end of September, exactly what we got this year. And then the fourth quarter is the best quarter of the year. And that rally tends to extend into the new year also. So I really think that we are in a position to have a pretty good fourth quarter.
2: So Bruce, as we take a look at this, uh, 2022 has been an unusual year for probably the last half century. Uh, The industry is operated under the 60-40 balance, 60% stocks, 40% uh, bonds, and that would help you out in a bear market like in 2008 or in 2000. This year, Bruce, I don't think anything has worked other than energy. Stocks are down, bonds are down, commodities are down. I guess if you were in cash or just energy, you would have done okay, but not too many people play it that way.
7: Right, exactly. I know it's just been uh, horrible for people that have been widely diverse, diversified across the major asset classes. I have a bit of good news, maybe, and that is, <laughs> well, first of all, we know and uh, that we've been in a tight money environment for much of the year, and tight money, in my mind, is that we have a... Uh, flattening yield curve, and then we get to a a, a literally a negative yield curve where short-term interest rates are uh, higher than longer-term interest rates. So that is uh, one of the definitions of tight money. And uh, the two-year yield has been higher than the 10-year yield for most of the year since the first quarter. And the yield curve has been flattening since early in 2021 so now the if you look at the three-month t-bills to the uh 10-year just this week that relationship has gone also negative and so we now have three-month t-bills at or above the yield on 10-year treasuries so this is a very very tight money situation and so this is something for us to keep in mind because interest rates have been going up very fast but this typically is a signal of recession and of course i think pretty much uh, everybody believes or understands that we're in a no growth economy at this time and uh possibly it could get worse i don't think it's going to get much worse for the time being but Part of this flattening of the yield curve has been that we've had a horrendous bear market in uh, long-term U.S. Treasury bonds. And so if we were just to look at a proxy, which is the TLT, which is 20-plus year U.S. Treasury bonds, and this is the ETF, it was over, it got as high as 152 uh, in December in the fourth quarter of 2021. Jim, it's gone all the way down to to 92 152 to 92. And so that's an incredible decline for bonds, 20 plus year bonds. And uh but there's a technique, an old school technique that I use called point and figure and we're going to put this chart up for people if they want to come to Financial Sense News Hour and and look at the chart is I did a point and figure chart and Believe it or not, the distributional top in 2021 gave us a a count down to 101 to 91 for the TLT. We've just fulfilled that. And so we have fulfilled the downside count in my estimation or my objectives for how far down the bond market can go. Now, does that mean the bond market has to rally here right away? It might rally some. I think it's going to spend time in this area. And we'll have to wait and see whether or not it can build a cause for a more important rally in the future. But I think that the worst of the bleeding in the bond market for the time being is about over.
2: What's your take on commodities here? Because, you know, we're talking about this transition to green. Green does not work without copper, cobalt, silver, all these kind of special minerals. So let's begin with commodities. And then I'd like to Follow that up with your take on precious metals.
7: Well, where I would start with commodities is to uh, really focus on the dollar. And the dollar has been in an absolutely epic bull run. And uh, I'm going to have a chart for everybody on the dollar. But if you uh, look at the weekly chart, since early 2021, the dollar has been on an upward tear and has rallied Uh, up into the end of the third quarter. Quarter end is a very important period in my work. And we uh, had a buying climax, we would call it for the strength of the dollar. Thereafter, the dollar had an important pullback. I think the dollar is range bound and potentially has just put in some kind of a top and that we're going to get now weakness in the dollar maybe not initially, but soon the dollar is going to start to tail off. It's exhausted. It's bull run. Now, how that translates is ever since that's happened, Jim, the uh, materials sectors and also precious metals have started to act better. And so I believe that this is largely related to the dollar and the dollar strength. And also there's a lot of other Uh, existential reasons why we don't want to have a super strong dollar because it puts so much stress on the rest of the world and especially emerging economies because so much of their debt is valued in dollars and a strong dollar makes it very difficult for them to be able to repay interest and principal. And so uh, having the dollar calm down and maybe even pull back some would be i think a very welcome thing and i think it bodes well for materials
2: so when you look at that let's let's move on to precious metals because bruce if you would have told me that we would have been heading into a higher inflationary environment which was the case right around february and march when gold hit its high And then as inflation took off, gold would go down. I would have said you're nuts, but that's exactly what happened. What's your take here on uh, precious metals, especially gold and silver?
7: I believe that uh, gold and silver also are going to be a beneficiary here of a weakening dollar. And I don't know that the dollar has to weaken much, but just stop going up. But uh, I do believe that, well, first of all, I've done some point and figure work on the gold and silver markets. And in both cases, they have fulfilled their downside objectives and are starting to build what looks like basing action for a more important rally. So I think that gold and silver uh, are exhausted on the downside, are starting to make a case for how they could rally here. Uh, Do they rally a lot initially? Uh, I don't know. But I think that the, I think both of those metals are in the deep value zone and in the deep value zone is where these institutions will start to really look at putting some uh, uh, gold and silver and other materials into their portfolios because they know they're getting a good bargain.
2: Bruce, what about the technology sector? Over the last couple of years, when the market was going up, we had the fabulous five stocks, you know, the Fang stocks that were leading the market, the Microsoft, the Amazons, the Googles. A lot of these stocks have been hammered. I'm just thinking of Meta, which is what, down 65, 70%. What do you think of technology here? Because it still looks expensive to me, but you know, what do the charts tell you?
7: Absolutely to avoid it. It is one of the weaker sectors. I do a lot of uh, relative rotation work where I'm looking for where the strength is coming in markets. This period, Jim, reminds me so much of the uh, aftermath of the dot-com period in 2000 to 2003. And we were just going through a lot of the, the really big growth stocks here uh, in a podcast in a webinar yesterday And in these, these stocks are, have just been crushed. And as people will recall, or you certainly should go back and study this prior era, these stocks went down and down and down, sort of like what Meta's doing. And they went down for two, three, four years. And even when they hit their low valuations, and in many cases, they were down 70, 80, 90 percent from their high watermarks. They and some never came back, is that they languished at those low levels for a long time because people had been so uh, beaten up owning them. They didn't want to go back to those. And then in the meantime, where's the strength? So if we looked, and so this is exactly what happened in 2000, and it's happening now, is that where's the strength taking place? Well, the emerging industry groups, that are showing leadership are all the uh, energy components. And, of course, this is exactly what happened in 2002, 2003, as the uh, bear market was ending and a new bull market was beginning. Energy was already on the way up. Back then it was housing and banking and so on. Well, today some of the leading groups are pharmaceuticals, uh, marine transportation, healthcare. Uh, paper stocks, There, that's a materials stock. Steel, the steel index is up and starting to lead uh, here. Waste and disposal, uh, property and casualty insurance. All of the insurance themes look very interesting here. It, and this is, reminds me so much of what happened back in the beginning of 2000 to 2003 and I believe that this is where the value is. Defense is strong. Where the value is is where uh, institutions are going to go. And they're basically trying to find a way to reduce their exposure to these FANG stocks because at the top, they owned way too much of them. They can. They have to continue to own them. But they're going; they are in the process of reducing their exposure to these growth themes and going more to the
2: value areas. Yeah, that reminds me very much. Uh, you know, coming out of the tech bubble after almost a fifty percent decline in the stock market, you know, a lot of these companies like Microsoft and uh, Cisco, a lot of the darlings of that era, did nothing for almost a full decade. Exactly, and
7: what I do on my program. And this program is absolutely free to watch. Is uh, I go into uh, to a method that I use to identify emerging leadership, and the leader. These are the what I described here are some of the leadership sectors, and we want to always focus on where the leadership is. Well, guess what? The leaders are where the value is, and that's what institutions are focusing on, and I really believe. That as we go forward, especially if we can get a good uh, fourth quarter of this year, that there's going to be a number of really robust industries where you're going to be able to get uh, good growth characteristics, deep value, and dividends. So this is not a bad period for investors.
2: So if you were to boil it down to your top three sectors you, you see leading this rally, what would that be besides energy?
7: Healthcare looks terrific to me. Uh, Also, the insurance stocks across uh, many of the different sub-industry groups are uh, very interesting. Heavy construction is an area where I think that there's uh, good things uh, happening. And, of course, I would continue uh, looking at the oil industry, all of the different uh, aspects of it is, is it's been in a sideways trading range now for a few months And now looks like it wants to get going again and maybe even put on another good bull market leg. And of course, that's been one of the saving graces in this uh, very difficult 2022 has been to be in oil stocks. And they still have uh, really demonstrable value characteristics. And another one that's maybe more of a growth theme that is showing up in my work is renewable energy equipment so renewable energy is part of that complex and uh it's more of a growth theme looks pretty good and then let me also mention defense defense is uh starting to percolate to the top and uh so i and there's an area where there's uh, a lot of good value also
2: yeah it's it's hard not to look at defense when you look at the geopolitical situation we have today from ukraine to maybe south china seas Bruce, as we uh, close, if our listeners would like to follow you, what's the best way to do that?
7: Well, again, I do a blog at StockCharts.com. It's completely free. Go to StockCharts.com, look up Wyckoff Power Charting in the articles, under articles. And I have a whole collection there going back years. And then also, I do a weekly show where I show the charts and the studies that we talked about today and uh, that's available at Stock Charts TV, which you can get to through StockCharts.com. Again, that's also free to view. And I have a whole collection of prior episodes to watch also.
2: Bruce, thanks for joining us on the program. Well, as Bruce said today, when you look at the big corrections we're seeing in many of the tech names, this period looks very similar to what we saw during the aftermath of the 2000 tech bubble 20 years ago. Investors rotated out of highly overvalued growth companies and moved into the undervalued sectors of the market. That's exactly what we did during the tech bubble, selling out of tech and moving into energy and commodities at the beginning of the last major bull market in natural resources. And we at Financial Sense Wealth Management are making a similar move today with heavy investments into undervalued high dividend paying companies give us a call to come on board at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us.
5: These new semiconductor export restrictions billed a couple weeks ago by the Biden administration are pretty significant. Historically, there has been restrictions in the past. The U.S. has targeted primarily the Chinese military, but the risk is that, you know, we don't know how China is going to respond to these latest export restrictions. And it's possible that China could retaliate by weaponizing the rare earth elements supply chain. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button.
0: Are you tired of earning a minimal interest rate on your investments? Are you looking for a higher rate of return on your money? Financial Sense Wealth Management has put together a portfolio of high-dividend-paying blue chips, high-quality interest-paying bonds, and preferred stocks. Our income account portfolio is specifically designed to help meet the needs of retirees, pension funds, and foundations looking to increase income and reduce taxes. To learn more, contact us at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com.
2: Several issues the market has been struggling with this year is the persistent rise in interest rates as the Fed raises rates aggressively, including four three-quarters of a point rate hikes with another one expected. Another issue markets and companies are dealing with is the strong dollar. Let's find out what this means for the markets going forward. Joining us from Greg Weldon Live is Greg Weldon. Greg, let's begin with the dollar in interest rates in the havoc that is basically we're seeing across the world whether it's emerging markets one of the issues that we have seen is forcing a lot of these central banks to sell off their treasuries to defend their currency or to get dollars to pay for oil. Let's go from there.
8: I mean, yeah, you nailed it in two places. Number one, you know, the damage that's been done already, which some of which isn't even visible yet, but it's becoming more and more increasingly visible. The data evidence is kind of overwhelming, frankly, if you ask me in some cases, I mean, geez, look at the mortgage market, look at mortgage bonds, look at the housing market. I mean, you know, that's already, you know, and the Fed says we want to go to four and a half and we want to stay, quote unquote, slightly restrictive, you know, for the near term after that, that they don't want to make the mistake of easing too early after having been tightening. They just said that it's in their meeting minutes from like a week or two ago. And what makes that interesting is, can you imagine mortgage rates at seven to eight percent for the next two years? I mean, just think about that. All right. Think about what the prices of houses would do too, because then, of course, building would slow down. You know, the whole back effect of that is huge. And we're talking about one sector here, interest rate sensitive as it is, that has already imploded. So when people talk about, is this a recession or not? I think the data has answered that question, whether it's happening now or is coming. You could say there's a triple play out there, noting the baseball playoffs right now, San Diego, right? New York. You talk about the dynamic around how you have three different things that when they have happened in the past, there's a 100% chance of recession in the next 12 to 18 months. And that is food at home above 6% annualized. It's 13. You have the other one, the yield curve inverted. And it was inverted. It's Parts of it still are inverted. You kind of look at the barbell around the five-year. The five-year versus the two-year. Five-year versus the 10-year. And you take the 10-year and put it in the middle. It's very interesting to see the depths to which some of these curves have inverted that we haven't seen for over 20 years. And then the third thing was when you talk about the household finance situation and you talk about how the dollar has played into inflation has really influenced the household situation way more than the rate hikes have already. Because what this does is it has a real impact on the monetary conditions, which have tightened dramatically. So the third thing you're really looking at is simply the dollar index. When it is above 15% on a rolling 52-week moving average, that's your third strike. That's your third out you know, in a, in a triple play. So you have all those things from the damage done already that we're anticipating seeing in the future. Then you kind of come back to you know, interest rates and where are they going? Well, I just, you know, to me, we kind of put out a buy recommendation this morning on bonds just because I don't see how the Fed's going to do what they say they're doing. You know, and I know, Jim, we've been around long enough that the Fed puppeteers the market, gets the market to do some of their dirty work for them. And if this hasn't worked beautifully with the fact the dollar's up 20% year over year, up 30% against gold, which is even a better indicator of monetary conditions tightening or loosening, you know, I think the kind of the last leg around convincing the Fed that they need to step off the break here Could be that they want to see some disinflation in the stock market, which hasn't happened. And then the question is, why has that not
2: happened? And let's talk about a couple other things that they're dealing with and something the Fed can do nothing about. I'm looking at oil prices. The president just released another 15 million barrels from the SPR. I think, Greg, we're down to 1984 levels, but that's supposed to stop after the election. And then we have the cap on Russian oil. And we're taking a look at natural gas prices, 40 bucks in Europe, 50 in Asia. What are they, six, seven here? What are they going to do when prices escalate after the midterm elections? There's nothing the Fed can do about that other than just kill off demand.
8: You know, Jim, we've been talking about this one for a while. And for a while, for a while, I mean, it certainly goes a long way back, 1990, early 90s. But when we talk about the most recent history of this, it goes back to the football game where the college students hijacked the field at halftime and protested big oil in the endowment funds. All right. Ever since then, we've had this huge trend to disinvest, and especially refineries are you know dirty business, very expensive to maintain, cash poor companies, debt ridden. I mean, this sets up such a bullish market against which you're talking about replacing you know, these energy sources with EVs. You don't have enough nickel, you don't have enough of these other materials, cobalt and lithium in particular, to really make those expectations where EVs are going to be on the road in the future even nearly realistic. It's kind of insanity. So for me, it's like gasoline will keep going up in price until it goes to zero. And it probably never goes to zero you know, because you're even talking, you know, I mean, who's not going to want to drive a gas engine car I mean, you're talking 50 years out into the future. But the bottom line is, from this perspective, demand will keep going up relative to the expectations for sure and relative to the supply. And to me, that makes you know, gasoline a very bullish item on its own merit. Then you throw Russia into the mix. Let's talk China, because you can't talk oil and Russia without talking China, especially natural gas. With the deal that was forged with Putin and Xi when they met during the Olympics, which Biden refused to attend. Kind of silly not to be there and hear what they're going to talk about, although they can meet on their own anyway. But they basically forged a whole new, you know it was like a 40 trillion won new project to build a new pipeline through Siberia that would deliver oil to China and to team up with Kazakhstan to forge new delivery systems for natural gas. They immediately were talking about at least a 5% shift from the EU to China. Then you talk about this whole Ukraine issue, all right? I mean, come on. It's about food. It's about ports. It's about shipping food to China, okay? This is all about China, OPEC, Russia kind of teaming up as a new axis of power, if you will. And it's about financial and resource weapons here. And we've seen it. And, you know, the US goes after, you know, Russian Central Bank, well, guess what Russia's going to do? I mean, you know, gloves are off here. This is a new kind of war and we're almost can say we're at war on these things. So when you take the all into that account. You know, you really could get on board with some of the people to say oil is going much higher here because what's the downside versus the upside here? That's the big question. And it's pretty skewed you know, ratio wise to the upside.
2: Greg, let's also talk about something else you're also seeing is a movement away from the petrodollar. You see that with Russia, you see it with China, you see it with Saudi Arabia, you see it with Iran. And in addition to that, you've got major gold accumulation occurring in China and Russia. So what does all that tell you, especially with the new gold exchange that they're talking about?
8: Jim, you know this. I mean, we've talked about this before. It is all playing out the way we said it would to the degree that, you know, things haven't happened as quickly, but these are things that take a while. So, you know, maybe my expectations for, you know, dumping of the petrodollar, is just too soon. I mean, you got a lot of other steps first before that happens, but it will happen. This is a situation where, you know, China, Xi, third, you know, unprecedented, you know, he's an offshoot of the number two man to Mao Zedong. The people are calling him the new Mao already. He was groomed to be this since he was six years old sent to the US to become educated, married, looks good. He's very you know, personable in at least his appearance. But at the same time, it's manifest destiny there in Asia. That's why they're in conflict with the Philippines, with Vietnam, with Malaysia, I mean, and with Taiwan, which they will eventually make a move on. I don't think anybody that really thinks that's not going to happen anymore. So the question becomes the nuclear financial weaponry here. The biggest one is the dollar as the petrocurrency. And not just that the petrocurrency, but it's the currency of transaction for most all commodities, Jim. And when you talk about who's the biggest importer of commodities, it's China. So the day China comes and says, and there's a lot of reasons why you would say they wouldn't do this, if you believe that Xi cared about the people you know to the degree of, we want to keep everyone employed, but we want to maintain order, they don't care about the tech companies. They don't care about valuations. They don't care about their stock market. All right. What they care about is their manifest destiny. And in that sense, I think there will become a day when they will play this card where they will turn around, and say, as the biggest importer and exporter monthly basis on the planet, 300 billion of each every single month to say, look, we're only going to accept RimNinbi for our exports. We're going to pay RimNinbi for our imports. And that's the day the dollar dumps, the stock market gets wasted, bond yields go crazy. And we're looking at kind of almost, you know, it's Pearl Harbor Day. Now do how do we recover and fight back. I don't know. I mean, that's a tall order. And we'll see how that happens. I mean, hopefully this never happens. And hopefully I'm wrong. I just think the writing's on the wall. I mean, you put the pieces of the puzzle together. It's not a pretty picture.
2: I want to talk about something else. I want to go back to interest rates. It's hard to believe for many of our listeners that, Greg, a little over a year ago, you had 10-year Treasury notes under a half a percent. Today, they're over four. But I want to talk about the amount of government debt that has been short-term. The government did the opposite what you and I as consumers did. When interest rates dropped, we refinanced our home. We locked in low mortgage rates. Corporations refinanced their debt. Instead, the government went short-term term because the yields were next to nothing. So what happens when you go from one, let's say 10 basis points on a treasury bill to over four, what is that going to do to the interest cost in the deficit over the next 12 months?
8: Yeah, you nailed it again. I mean, you know, I've talked about this at length too, back when they decided to do this, that this was a major policy error. And it will prove to in the future become a bigger deal if people think of it that way and look back on why this is it's just a boneheaded move, man. I don't see any other thing when I saw it. I went, you should be selling 100-year bonds here, man. <laughs> Seriously. And yeah, the whole dynamic around shortening all that debt, I don't understand it, Jim. And what it does is it kind of opens the door for the question mark around, do central banks at some point have the risk of losing control of bond markets? Look what's going on in Japan and UK, and you have to start to wonder. And then you talk about the US you talk about a Fed that was buying 1.44 trillion annualized every day, every week, every month, all right, and a supply that was growing, but you know, relative to the Fed buying, wasn't seemingly at least exorbitant. All of a sudden, public borrowing is two trillion. We know with the, the interest cost on the debt is skyrocketing too, although it's still nominally small, all right. But that's the thing again with this, all the short-term debt that's going to change, and that could be your kind of your accelerant if on this fire, if you will. If you get bond yields out of control because it's a simple supply and demand situation, the next step then, of course, is the Fed will have to change their narrative at some point from fighting inflation to protecting growth. We know that. We see, frankly, stagflation all over the place. We've talked about that too. That, to me, is the ultimate outcome. It always has been. Just today, we got data out of Singapore and South Korea that show it in Asia, right? South Korean consumer confidence is crashing since July, which is recent. And the Singapore CPI year over year, seven and a half, that's a new high. We see it in places like Europe. I mean, Latvian inflation is almost 25%. And you say, okay, who cares about Latvia? It's not just Latvia. It's Latvia, it's Czech, it's the Hungarians, it's Poland, it's Romania, it's Bulgaria. These places have food inflation of over 30% a year. And then you look at the US and some of the numbers we've seen. Again, it's tough to see how we're not looking at a global recession here to some degree. And it's global. And you said that earlier too. I mean, it's every... Place in the world, and you start to look at emerging markets. Then you talk about potential currency crises because the dollar's so high. You have c- countries where the currencies are down. You know the dollar. I should say, dollar is up by fifty percent or more in the last twelve months. A lot of them. There's twenty-one emerging market currencies that I track. Twenty-one that have set new lows in the last week or in the last six months. That's a problem. That's a bigger problem for the Fed that hasn't yet to be addressed. And we talked about this. The Fed can't let the dollar get too high or they precipitate a whole nother problem that they're going to have to deal with. And here it is, it's
2: happening. Yeah, because I think back, Greg, in 1981, when Volcker finally re- reversed course, it was because Mexico and a lot of Latin American countries were close to default. They have done that several times. Remember, 19, uh, what was it, 1994, when they doubled the Fed funds rate, and we had emerging well, market Well, remember, crisis. Jim,
8: you bring up a great point. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just want to get this in because it's so kind of cool to think about. The last time the dollar was at this rate of appreciation was then, okay, on several measures. And when you look at what came next, the Plaza Accord, Jim, I mean, you and I, I know I was around, I think you were around for the Plaza Accord, and it's hard to find people that were trading the markets the day of the Plaza Accord announcement. But that was one of the wildest days ever. Nobody really talks about it. You're almost in a similar situation, but you won't get the agreement that you saw back then, I don't think. But it was for the same reasons that we're facing now.
2: I want to talk about something as, And this goes back to the debt. So now we have these massive debts that the treasury has to issue new debt. Foreigners are dumping their bonds because they're defending their currency or trying to raise dollars to buy oil. At the same time, the Fed is cutting back on its bond buying. At some point, they're going to have to change or this bond market gets out from underneath them.
8: Well, of course. I mean, of course they will. Jim, we know that. UK is the perfect example. It took them eight days to turn around. I mean, just that alone is a very loud warning siren going off. It gets back to something we've talked about over the years, if not decades, that you and I have known each other. It goes back to what I wrote in the book in 2006 and called it Monetary Armageddon. Could this ultimately lead to a situation where they buy you? You have like in the movies, you have the general and you have the politician there and the president or whoever, and they both have to turn the keys simultaneously to set off the nukes. It's kind of like the Treasury and the Fed are gonna to get together, turn the key, and buy every treasury bond ever printed. Problem with that is Jim and a loaf of bread will cost $50 after that. So I don't know. I continue to think that stagflation is more of a trend. And for these very reasons, because of course they're gonna to have to reverse. Of course they're gonna to have to buy more bonds. Of course, that's gonna to continue to stoke inflation. Maybe that's why inflation wasn't a problem in the past, because you have multiple things now working against deflation in prices that had kept prices down through all the money printing. And now that probably has changed. I think that could be the biggest kind of secular shift that we've seen here.
2: I want to go back to precious metals for a moment here, because we've got silver inventories, Greg, are dropping in London and dropping here in the US. You've got a massive short position and gold has stagnated with probably the worst inflation that we've seen in probably four decades. And I know they're saying, well, it's the dollar, it's the Fed's raising interest rates. But do you think I want to tie in to long-term treasuries when inflation is running at 8% and I'm only getting four? I don't think so.
8: Well, I mean, you, know, you bring up a great point. All right. And then the thing to focus on here is the fact that gold has not rallied, but it is the dollar. And in fact, to extend that thought, which is that the dollar is up and inflation is skyrocketing, all right? And what does that mean to us? Well, it means you know at some the Fed's gonna have to change their tune. And what happens then? The dollar starts to depreciate. And what does that do? Likely, in my mind, that creates the second wave of inflation because this wasn't a dollar-driven inflation, which a lot of them have been in the past. So that's the number one thing to think about. Then you go back to what you originally said. It's not just silver in terms of inventories versus price, it's a lot of the base metals. I mean, it really is. You start to look at nickel, start to look at tin, start to look at zinc. You're all you're looking at examples of these. Industrial metals where the uh, LME warehouse inventories are very low. Some of that has been shipped to Shanghai. So it's sitting in Shanghai. We don't know, you know, to what degree we can look at the import numbers and gauge how much that is. But a lot of the supply is just not there. And prices relative to that supply have crashed. The backwardation has crashed. So I look at that as more of a short term technical situation. Really, when you're talking about, look what they did with nickel. You don't want to be long these. A lot of people were long the metals. They got kind of forced to sell. And when you're buying, you're buying the front month contract, right? And you're not buying the 27-month out on the LME or whatever exchange. When you're now, you have this dumping by speculators, what happened? It affected the spreads because the front month dumped and you wiped out all that bullish backwardation just into speculative liquidation. So I think there's been kind of some I'm not sure how I should phrase this you know, because of what the LME did in the nickel market. And it personally affected me and my clients, right? like in a lot of money. And it was profits that they basically stole from us and gave to the Chinese billionaire and JP Morgan was involved. And it was quite a mess. I mean, I still don't understand why there's no you know, legal repercussions from that. Having said that, it affected markets. And I think a lot of these markets are mispriced to the supply demand fundamentals. I mean, really. So yeah. But you also have to be careful because it could be if the stock market gets wasted, which I think has still a good chance of happening. That could depress them a little further, and you could still see gold below 1,500. So I think right now, I want to see more evidence that the markets themselves are ready to rally. But when they do, I will
2: pounce all over. Greg, I want to get your take on the coin market. So If we look at silver, it's in the $18, $19 range, been there pretty much most of the year. But if I go to, let's say, Kitco and I want to buy a Silver Eagle, I'm going to pay an 80% premium. How do you explain that?
8: I don't. It's crazy. I mean, it's a business. You know, I mean, look, I respect Kitco in particular. I mean, frankly, and, you know, I've had... Known many of the people in that business. I've never had any business relationships with them because you know I've got to keep it clean for my company. In other words, you know we produce research, we sell it. I manage money, I take my fees. I don't need brokerage, I don't need deals bringing clients to Kitco, I don't need anything like that. So I'm very objective. I mean, hey, it's a business, and people want to pay it, Jim. That's where the price is. You know, that's open markets, capital markets. Kind of, you know, it is what it is. I think you know there's a lot of people out there that are not educated enough to make the right decisions. Frankly, in some of that, and if there were. That wouldn't necessarily be the case.
2: Yeah, Greg, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, you know, you see the little machinations. I've seen that in the OO decade, you know, they. Go long silver at three fifty they shorted it at five. That was kind of played out for a couple of years, and then silver finally broke out but I'd like to get your take here if you take a look at base metals, if you take a look at gold from where it was in the year two thousand to where it is today, you know silver is the only metal it got up to fifty what was it fifty in uh twenty eleven but it's still when you consider it was fifty dollars an ounce in nineteen eighty and today. What, 40 years later, it's, what, 19 bucks?
8: Well, I mean, you know, when you got a big bank that has trillions of dollars under its control, it's, and they want to be short this market and hold it down for whatever reason, you know, let's just say that's that's probably what's happening. I don't get much into conspiracy theories or market manipulation, but, you know, I've also accepted it as something that's in the business from pretty much from day one on the Florida Comics. You got to know the big players. You got to watch how they could try to want to keep prices in the ranges that serve them best. I mean, to that degree, Jim, I have to say, of course, it's about money. And it's about people's you know, financial well-being. But, you know, it's a game at the same time. If you want to look at it from the very secular top where you have so much money, it doesn't matter. And this is the game you're playing. It's kind of it becomes almost not real. So can we break through that? I think there were signs recently that we can. When you start to look at some of the deliveries that have taken place recently to build in the, you know, the kind of the physical inventory, which frankly is really smart. I mean, think about that. Okay. It's a smart play if you can pull it off. But at the same time, we know that these market manipulations and attempts to control markets don't last forever. They ultimately get busted, and I think that that day will come. And that's why I'm always involved in silver more than gold in terms of where I choose to take my risk on the long side.
2: So, Greg, there's talk about you know the Fed's been hanging tough. There is some Fed governors coming out now that say maybe we ought to slow the pace of rate hikes. Do you think they're more likely to pause? rather than pivot and start slashing rates.
8: absolutely. Unless the stock market's down 60%, yeah, no doubt. I mean, this would be an emergency situation where they would kind of cut the discount rate as the preface to cutting Fed funds or policy or whatever. They have been very clear. I'll tell you this, Powell has been almost too transparent from day one, and I respect Powell a lot. I really like him. He seems like a likable guy. I think he's a straight shooter. He's willing to kind of talk off on the fly which is kind of rare. He's not as calculated as comments. But that has also led to kind of interpretations from his comments that turned out not to really be what he wanted to say. And we've seen a lot of that recently. I think that he started to actually lay the groundwork for shift in the narrative in July at the post-meeting press conference. You go back, I wrote about this using his comments. I mean, you know, he's like eight he broke down each sentence that I used, not the whole thing, but you know, specific comments that were very subtle yet significant. And he had to back off in August from that, of course, because inflation skyrocketing. The market, what happened? The stock market rallied. The stock market rallied. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, the Fed's going to pivot here with stocks here. Now, a lot of people say, well, hey, stocks are down 35%. Isn't that enough? It's relative to the $8 trillion of printed money that drove it to the new highs from the 2019 high. We're not back to that yet. So to say it's down enough is unrealistic relative to the economic situation, relative to the money flow, relative to a lot of things. So frankly, I think, and this is hard to say, but I really do think it, the Fed you know, will not be letting up here until either inflation does slow down or get some decline in the employment numbers on a monthly basis or the stock market cracks. It's kind of the one thing that hasn't disinflated yet. And I think they're a little bit wary about, you know, jumpstarting a whole new red hot move from here, assuming they could even do that because what we haven't talked about is the next round of easing, the next recession, the next financial panic, the next bankrupt whatever. The Fed's bullets now, you know, at least they've replenished the chamber to some degree, but you have a lot of central banks out there that have not done that, specifically the ECB and the Bank of Japan. You know, you have a lot of places and Europe is much more at economic risk than the US right now. Much deeper, much more broad, much more damaging to the people. What is the ECB going to do? You can't cut rates. I mean, virtually still at zero. I mean, they raised them, I mean, barely at all, relatively speaking. So I think there's a lot of problems with just thinking that the next time we have an issue, that central banks are going to ride the white horse to the rescue and everyone's going to react the way they have in, in did in 2008 or to the pandemic. They're going to have to print a heck of a lot more money the next time too, because every time money supply goes up, so does the amount you have to print the next time around. It's that simple. Now, again, there's a lot of open ground on that, but ultimately we'll see. I think the stock market's at some risk, but I think You have again a thing where when that happens, if it does drive the precious metals prices back down to another level, I mean that could be like the buying opportunity in the next decade.
2: So finally, Greg, given what you see right now, what would you be doing as an investor?
8: Well, that's an interesting and good question, Jim, because right now my positions might be as few as they've been in two or three years. I think that it's a wait and see mode. I'm waiting for some. It's not even that I'm waiting for clarity. I'm waiting for the markets to kind of figure out what they want to do here. Because we're waiting for something more from the Fed, and I think that or some of the shoe to drop somewhere, and I just see the evidence all over the place that shoes are dropping, and no one's really kind of noticing it because I don't know why. I mean, again, you talk about the mortgage market; I mean, a lot more people talking about the degree to which mortgage bonds are down, the MBB is down, the applications are down, the refinancing is down over ninety percent versus year over year. So, I think there's a lot of issues there going forward in terms of the economic picture that have to be clarified yet. Or at least recognized. I've done this in the past, and I think the stock markets will be part of that, where it was the same thing in 2007. It was the same thing in 1989, 1990. It was the same thing in 1999 and 2000. I remember going on CNBC with Ted David in 2000, and the NASDAQ had just started falling and it bounced. And everyone was asking, is it time to buy? Like everyone's asking right now. And I went on, it was trading around just above 5,000. And I had done the math that day in my office and not expecting to be asked this question. I was just, looking at the projections to the downside, getting ready to get short. And I just had a number in my head and it was just pure math. And I didn't really think about it. And I I go on and he asked me, we're trading 5,000. He asked me, how far, how low do you think it could go? And I blurted out without really even stopping to think 1,300, because that was the target I had figured out using kind of the mathematical formulas and algorithms I use. And I mean, he almost fell off his share. I was never asked back on the show again. And I got a very (laughs) nice email from him when the NASDAQ hit 1,300, maybe 9, 10, 11 months later. I think we're in a similar situation where the writing's on the wall and you have a lot of vested interest too. You look at financial television, Jim, and I know that you are kind of also rail to the degree that it does a disservice to some degree, to some degree, to the individual investor, where it's all about where to buy, where to buy. And they're so quick, every little decline, where to buy. And almost every person they jot out there has a vested interest in being long in the stock market because they own stocks. The shows have a vested interest because their ratings go up when the stock market goes up. And it's kind of like it's gotten to the point where it's not, you don't have 50, 50 opinions. And you could say, well, that's because you don't have 50% of the people that are bearish. But I think you need to offer both sides of the argument to a greater degree than is being heard out there. And I think you've instilled this, you know, buy and hold belief. You have a whole new wave of people that can trade on their phones on Publix and on Robinhood, and they're uneducated and they get enticed by these commercials. I mean, you see the one from Publix. It's like, build better portfolios on public. You come on there and it's like, okay, how are you helping me build a better portfolio? They're not, right? They're just trying to get you on there to trade as if you know what you're doing. So that's actually one of the reasons we started a podcast just recently, be coming soon, to try and help like the average investor out there, especially in this new era of volatility. And you know, we've talked about this at length, how volatility is gonna continue to rise for a lot of reasons, and it creates a whole new environment. And that's one of the reasons I think buy and hold is not the right way to go right now. And it's going to be called, it's interesting, it's going to be called Money Markets and New Age Investing, because it really is about this new age where money has become so overly printed that the markets will remain volatile because all they're going to do, like you said, you know they'll turn, you'll know they have to buy more bonds because the supply demand situation will demand it You know to prevent an economic downturn that is very severe. So it's a new age and it's, the investing rules have changed. And I think people need to start kind of understanding that a little better.
2: All right. Well, listen, Greg, as we close, tell our listeners about your website and your podcast.
8: Sure. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. Well, the podcast just mentioned money, markets, and new age investing, and that'll be kicking off next month at some point. We'll put up some new podcasts uh, you know, created for the future every two weeks. And the degree to which we're still now doing a Weldon Live, it's at WeldonOnline.com you get 100% of me for one price, really trying to help the small guy with some of these ins and outs about other markets they could trade, other positions they might take. You know, we have pretty specific recommendations across the spectrum from fixed income to foreign exchange, to stock indexes and ETFs, to the metals, to the energy, and to the ag commodities, which I think are really important going forward, Jim. Food, 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 food prices, ag commodities. All right, You have 1,200-year drought in Spain and Portugal. You know, by landmass under severe drought in the U.S., it's the worst in history. We're already seeing now California start to reel under that in terms of the produce production. So I think food commodities are very hot and we cover them as well. That's WeldonLine.com. And I'm also a CTA and we manage money for accredited investors and trade all the same markets right in line with the research.
2: All right. Well, listen, Greg, as always, thanks for coming on the program. Have a great rest of the year.
8: Yeah, my pleasure, Jim. You do a great job. I'm always happy to participate and be part of the team. Team
5: All right. Thanks, Greg. Welcome, everyone, to today's Smart Macro segment. We are joined, as always, by our Chief Investment Officer here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. Chris, if you wouldn't mind, can you give our listeners a quick breakdown on this week's investment meeting we posted on YouTube talking about one of the biggest macro developments impacting the economy and the markets right now? And that's the massive spike we've seen in interest rates. One of the major themes that you've been highlighting is that some of the biggest buyers of U.S. debt have completely stepped away from the treasury market, which is causing yields to move very high, very fast. And that's a problem, of course. What's going on here?
4: You know, uh, when we look at interest rates, what was pretty surprising to a lot of market participants this year was the extreme divergence between interest rates and Economic data, such as, for example, the ISM manufacturing PMI, the PMI and interest rates have a very tight correlation. And the ISM peaked last year at an extremely high level as we came surging out of the COVID lockdowns. And what we saw, though, was that in the back half of last year, even while the ISM was falling, interest rates were starting to head higher. And we've seen the ISM continue to fall all year. And we're likely going to go well below 50, which is the the neutral zone. So anything under 50 is contractionary. Above is expansionary. And yet we have seen interest rates go vertical. So this is definitely not something that we have seen over the last several decades. There's got to be something explaining this surge in interest rates, particularly if you look at the year-over-year rate in inflation that is starting to come down. And yes, it's not coming down as much as the Fed and others would like, but we have seen a peak. So inflationary pressures are starting to recede, and yet interest rates keep climbing. So what I was looking at are possible influences to explain why that is happening. And in my opinion, I think two of the big causes of this are Japan and China's policies that are impacting the U.S. market as well as the globe. But in terms of Japan, just to give you an idea of kind of where Japan sits, uh, about 10 years ago, roughly 80% of uh, Japan's energy use was coming from imports. That has now increased to 93% as Japan basically closed down a ton of their nuclear reactors in response to the Fukushima disaster. So Japan is a heavy net importer of energy, really only supplies 7% of its energy needs. So, because of that, Japan is very susceptible to energy prices. And with the surge in energy prices, Japan's net trade surplus has collapsed to now a deficit. We've seen a complete reversal there. And so that has had a huge influence in terms of the U.S. Treasury market because Japan has consistently been a buyer of U.S. debt. But it's more difficult for Japan to do that when they're running a deficit versus having excess savings with a surplus. So with Japan, you've seen essentially Japan has stepped away as a buyer of debt. And again, that is largely due to the complete reversal of their trade balance. Now, it goes further than that. I believe what we're seeing is not only is Japan not buying U.S. treasuries, Japan is likely selling treasuries. And we've seen Japan intervene now, I believe, three times in just the last several months in terms of the currency market. And the reason for that is due to Japan's monetary policy. So Japan's monetary policy is currently yield curve control, where they cap the 10-year Japan yield at a quarter point. And they have said they will buy unlimited amounts of debt to keep rates capped at that level. And so as the whole global sovereign bond yields have surged this year, you've seen that even with Japanese 30-year and 40-year bonds, but the 10-year Japanese bond yield has been capped at a quarter point. So the greater the pressure on interest rates higher globally, the pressure is put on Japan's, uh, the Bank of Japan to print more uh, currency to buy government bonds to keep that rate at a quarter point. Well, there's no free lunch. You either let interest rates rise or you print money which then to, keep, to cap interest rates and see your currency fall. And that's exactly what we've seen. In a little over the last year, Japan's currency has fallen over 30% to the US dollar. And it has gotten destabilized to the point where Japan has actually intervened several times to stabilize the currency. And the way they've done that is by using their foreign exchange reserves by dumping other foreign currencies to buy their own currency to drive it up and stabilize it. And what we've seen is Japan's holdings of U.S. treasuries have fallen by several hundred billion dollars this year. And I believe a lot of that has to do with uh, debt rolling off and then using the proceeds of maturing U.S. Treasuries to then buy the currency, as well as selling Treasuries to buy their their currency. So Japan's monetary policy has had a major impact in terms of the U.S. Treasury market. uh, Where previously it was a buyer, it is now likely a seller, which is pressuring yields higher at the same time the U.S. Federal Reserve is selling U.S. Treasuries. But it's not just Japan's monetary policy. And what we've seen with China, just like Japan, is that China's seen its currency plummet to the lowest levels in a long time. I I believe the lowest level in at least 10 to 15 years. And with that, and given the sharp deceleration, we have seen China likely also sell treasuries to stabilize their currency. So like Japan, China's seen its U.S. treasury holdings decline. And we've seen uh, China likely step in, where I believe a week or two ago, China was even warning its banking system to be prepared to sell dollars. And that was to essentially prop up their currency and help stabilize it. So essentially, we're seeing Japan and China, um, number one, not buying U.S. Treasuries, number two, likely selling them to stabilize their currencies. So the longer the U.S. Fed wants to keep its aggressive monetary policy We're likely to see the dollar continue to strengthen, and the more the dollar strengthens, the more that China, Japan, and other countries are going to have to sell their U.S. FX reserves to stabilize their currencies. So essentially, we need to see something change here, or we're going to likely see continued pressure on U.S. interest rates higher. Uh, For example, today, the day you and I are speaking, we got U.S. uh, pending home sales, which were down 30% year over year. Outside of COVID, That is the greatest deceleration in the history of the data, even worse than the depths of the housing crisis, where essentially the market bottomed around 2010, 2011, at roughly around a 22% negative annual growth rate. So the speed of the decline. Exactly, the speed of the decline. Not how long the decline is, but at least the speed and the pace. So we are seeing a complete stalling in housing. Uh, We're seeing housing prices fall demand for homes fall, sales fall, and not only that, we're also seeing the cost in terms of, if you look at corporate earnings, we're starting to see corporations mention rising interest rate costs, a decline in hit to earnings due to the strong dollar from their foreign sales, as well as the hit that we're starting to see now in the U.S. government. For example, we just got third quarter GDP, and what we found was that the U.S. paid On an annualized basis, 736 billion dollars in interest on its debt. Now, again, that's annualized; that's taking the entire quarter and multiplying it by four. But this, uh, to put this in context, essentially next year, the budget for the military, I believe, is running around 780 billion or so for the entire military budget. So. The amount of debt that we are, or the amount of interest we're paying on our debt, is quickly going to eclipse the entire budget for the military. So, what this means, unless we see interest rates fall dramatically, we're either going to have to make huge cuts in several areas of the budget, or we're going to have to see ballooning budget deficits as we spend more than we take in. So, this is something the markets will have to grapple with, and it really does show the stress that high interest rates are putting on global financial markets, on housing markets, on the economy, even on on the U.S. government. And it really kind of highlights that I believe there's really only so far that the Federal Reserve can push rates because we are going to see pain across every facet of the U.S. economy, which is why I do think, Chris, we are probably getting close to the end of, of the Fed's monetary policy, and we're likely to see a 75 basis point rate hike next week followed by, I believe, a, a decelerating pace at maybe 50 in December and maybe only one more rate hike and then being done. So I think the light at the end of the tunnel is essentially coming to the end of the Fed's policy in terms of interest rate hikes. The question is, how fast does inflation fall and how fast does the economy slide to where it might be warranted that the Fed actually starts cutting interest rates? So this will be something we'll have to contend with in the months ahead, and I'm sure it'll be something you and I will be talking about as well.
5: Well, even though we are likely seeing a tactical year-end rally off oversold readings, as you and Felix Zuloff began warning on our show late last year, 2022 would be a year to get defensive, raise cash, and prepare for some pretty significant volatility. Both you and Felix were spot on, of course, and as we've been discussing for all of this year on our program, that message still hasn't changed especially with leading economic indicators nearly all falling in unison at this point. Tactically, we have taken advantage of this last correction to enter into some oversold positions, but looking out longer term, we're still holding to an overall cautious view while maintaining our overweight position to the energy sector given the record low inventories that we are facing. Just a quick reminder Chris does provide weekly chart updates to leading economic indicators, inventory levels for key commodities, and a whole host of the types of information that we discuss regularly here on our program. So if you aren't already, you can catch those videos on our site, FinancialSense.com, or on our YouTube channel. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services, feel free to click where it says Contact Us on FinancialSense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888 486 3939. Three nine.
2: In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning into the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. <music>